Welcome everyone to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm happy to welcome Jennifer Teleska, who's an Assistant Professor of Environmental Justice at the Pratt Institute in New York. And she'll be presenting her new book, uh, Red Gold, The Managed Extinction of the Giant Bluefin Tuna, which came out this year with University of Minnesota Press. So I'll give it over to you, Jennifer. Great. Um, thank you so much, Dolly, for your um, introduction and organization, and certainly to the greenhouse and everyone joining us today from wherever you are. Um, I'm really looking forward uh, to talking about the book and um, hopefully having a, a fruitful discussion. So um, I guess there's a little show and tell. Um, so here it is. Um, Red Gold, actually happy to talk about the cover image. The uh, publisher did an extraordinary job um, in designing the cover and in many ways the image is um, the argument of the book uh, writ small. So I guess really the first question um, is so why red gold as the title claim? So the book tells the story of the regulatory effort in fisheries management to conserve wildlife on the high seas through the lens of what has become one of the planet's most expensive fish, Atlantic bluefin tuna. Industry insiders call the bluefin red gold for the exorbitant price her ruby colored flesh commands in the sushi economy. Just one of her cousins, a bluefin from the Pacific, sold for a record 3.1 million US dollars at Tokyo Tsukiji Marketplace in January 2019. Some of you may have seen the headlines about this record sale at auction in the news, or you might know that the Atlantic bluefin is considered endangered by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Yet few of you may know how incredible an animal the bluefin is enjoying one of the longest migrations of any fish on the planet, swimming in packs lightning fast from one side of the Atlantic to the other, some swimming um, crossing the Atlantic in 40 days, uh, somehow finding the narrow stretch of the Strait of Gibraltar to enter the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and most um, notably growing to be the size of a horse, right? So hopefully you can all see um, this is an image reproduced in the prologue of the record catch of a bluefin from 1979 um, off the um, Canadian Maritimes in Nova Scotia. Um, and it's these giants that I knew as a child that are now gone um, from the ocean. So clearly the bluefin is not an ordinary fish. In fact, she's warm-blooded uh, somewhere on the evolutionary scale between a cold-blooded cod and a seafaring dolphin. That's why her meat is red. That said, the book tries to move beyond these reductionist um, uh, calculus that would suggest that intensifying demand and dwindling supply make for the bluefin's outrageous price when something much more important, I think, is going on. So enter the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. So um, the UN system loves its acronyms. So this is ICCAT, which is pronounced, and I'll use this throughout um, my introduction, is pronounced uh, ICAT. So ICAT formed by treaty in 1969, more than a half century ago, at a time when fishing nations already knew we had an overfishing problem on our hands. Likewise, ICAT formed out of the crisis of, 
while also seeking to manage the over-exploitation of commercial fish. Just brief background. Um, so ICAT is mandated by the authority delegated to it by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea to husband creatures crossing national jurisdictions over the vast expanse of the Atlantic Ocean and its nearby seas, including the Mediterranean. ICAT is one of dozens of regional fisheries bodies that regulate the supply of fish in international waters. ICAT's the most important of them by virtue of its membership alone. Over half, the countries, over half of the countries in the world participate as ICAT member states, including ones well beyond the Atlantic Basin, such as Vanuatu. The bluefin is not the only animal that has declined in size and volume under ICAT stewardship. Swordfish, marlins, sharks, tunas, such as big eye and yellowfin, seabirds, turtles, and other creatures caught as bycatch are now all stretched on the high seas. I have observed firsthand that ICAT conserves the bluefin not for her indispensable place in ocean ecologies or to ensure an ocean full of big fish into perpetuity for future generations. Conserved are the export markets of the signatories to the ICAT treaty. The institution by design has become not a protector of sea life, but a warden of economies to such an extent that ICAT has become a structural feature of what I call commodity empires. These findings, mostly through ethnography, which I'll talk about in a moment, presuppose a particular disposition toward our non-human animal kin. The people traversing through the ICAT network must disavow the majesty of the bluefin in order to carry on the work of global trade. They cannot confront the animal as subject and instead make rules about fish as object. Indeed, inside ICAT's regulatory zone, the language that's used to describe the fish is not, uh, I was calling her a giant, as I knew when I was a child, let alone a tiger of the ocean. Bluefin is linguistically marked a product divisible by units to be processed and her kin transshipped. Right? This is the language used um, by uh, policymakers including the most well-known, right? So is treating the bluefin as the most valuable stock in ICAT's portfolio. Taken together, these points support the book's main argument. Care for sea creatures or any other being for that matter must entail the rejection of the dominant hierarchy of value that eradicates entire life forms for prestige on the world stage and the aspiration for commodity empires. Let me be clear. Um, it's too easy a critique to blame the ICAT insiders for drinking the Kool-Aid, for treating fish as stock, for adopting specialized frameworks such as ecosystem services and maximum sustainable yield. In fact, the treatment of sea creatures as objects has become so normalized in society that we must ask deeper questions about the extent to which we consent to the slaughter. So how do I know what I know? So a brief discussion on methods, primary among them, ethnography um, and participant observation. I tracked the ICAT network for uh, three years, traveling to Agadir, Morocco, Brussels, Belgium, Cambridge, England, Istanbul, Turkey, Paris, France, Tokyo, Japan, Washington, DC, and other small towns in the Spanish countryside outside the metropolitan centers of Barcelona and Madrid. Madrid is where the ICAT Secretariat is based. 
ethnography was multi-sided in space and compressed in time. For over three years, I participated in and observed 14 ICAT and ICAT-related meetings. Access to diplomatic zones, as you might imagine, is not easy, which explains why ethnographies of them are few. I also conducted 38 semi-structured interviews with representatives from state, industry, and civil society outside of meeting events, and only four of them were completely on the record. I also consulted treaty and other legal texts and conducted textual analysis of reports in the news media. Critical ocean studies is the phrase I believe that best describes a project transdisciplinary in scope that must confront systems of domination in order to neutralize their power. No one body of knowledge could possibly account for the complexity of ocean governance at a time of mass extinction. So there are three um, takeaways or um, perhaps contributions as they relate to the environmental humanities that I'd like to highlight. The first is that I would like to refine our understanding of extinction by better specifying who are the agents of extermination. We must look not only to the capitalists profiteering from extraction, but to their enablers, the technocrats, the scientists, even the environmentalists. Chapter one and two develop this approach most explicitly. Chapter one tells the history of the Atlantic bluefin tuna trade in the long durée, stretching all the way back to the time of the Phoenicians millennia ago, when the bluefin then also supported powerful elites. We see in the long march of history that ICAT's emergence was not inevitable. It must be seen as part of the complementary projects of capitalism and global empire. By the 1970s, on the heels of the newly established ICAT treaty, member states were poised to legally permit animal capital to systematically accumulate for commodity empires. Member states today not only manage the supply of fish as a Keynesian worldview would have it, member states now speculate in the market. That is, they are attuned to exploiting the risk associated with financing the trade of underlying assets in the sushi economy. Chapter two piggybacks on chapter one. It illuminates how ICAT came to codify a predatory regime of value by distributing the fruits of extractive capitalism according to power structures from older eras. That is, when colonialism was the official policy of rich countries in the Anglo-European West. Clearly, this legacy is still with us today. Chapter two tells the story of the moment when ICAT split the bluefin tuna stock in two. Quite simply, policymakers looked at a map of the Atlantic Ocean, drew a straight imaginary line through the middle of it and cut the population in half. One stock for the countries fishing in the Western Atlantic and the other for countries fishing in the Eastern Atlantic. The mechanism used to codify, to ossify this arrangement was the catch quota system. The tragedy of lost generations of fish, as shown in the conclusion, is rooted not in the com commons, but in the commodity form. We have seen a concerted effort on behalf of nation states to enclose and privatize oceanic space and the creatures living there since at least the early 1980s. The problem then is not regulation per se, but the commoditized values ascendant in the dominant society that order and apply that regulation. 
This brings me to my second take home point. I'd like to encourage a disposition that moves us away from narratives suggesting that the goal should be to save the bluefin from extermination, like parallel discourses of saving the whale, the tiger, the rainforest. Instead, I think a more relational, radical approach would be to respect the fish. Reverence to more, to more than our human worlds is a precondition for any being ever to be saved. This point I develop most explicitly in chapter three, where I asked, how is it possible that ICAT reproduced its predatory hierarchy of value year after year, even in the face of its most trenchant critics in the public sphere? So in other words, where were the environmentalists in this story of predation? I look at published reports in the New York Times to track a social drama as bourgeois readers came to know ICAT as a villain preying on the bluefin as if she was an innocent victim of nature. Environmentalists appeared as the heroes who could save her from the existential horror of annihilation. I call this dynamic the savior plot. Familiar in its missionary zeal, Judeo-Christian in its roots, the savior plot assured the public that the serpent could be expelled from the Garden of Eden and the bluefin rescued from the dark forces brought to light by liberal saviors. By 2012, in the twilight of the second transnational campaign organized to save the bluefin by major environmental groups, the New York Times had in effect declared the bluefin saved once ICAT issued a series of reforms. These reforms were somewhat encouraging. And yet, despite tinkering with rules that projected a more favorable future for the bluefin, at least momentarily, I learned from afar more recently that ICAT member states agreed to triple the quota for bluefin in the Eastern Atlantic from its lowest level ever in 2010. The quota is now at its highest level ever in ICAT's history. Um, and this, I believe, is in part conditioned by the fact that news coverage evaporated and environmentalists took their foot off the gas. The New York Times did not cover this story, nor did they cover another one from 2018 documenting that the illegal fishing for bluefin is twice, twice the volume of the legal trade in the Mediterranean. The New York Times wedded to the savior plot could not accommodate these recent developments. My third contribution, or I hope, um, the book bridges multi-species, multi-sided ethnography in a zone less trafficked by scholars interested in human-animal relations, that is diplomacy and international relations. The marriage of these seemingly disparate fields is best developed in chapters four and five, uh, where the ethnography is most explicit. Uh, it's there that I discuss the role of science and of rules of procedure in the ICAT apparatus. If we recognize that the sixth mass extinction is not anthropogenic broadly, but rather sociogenic specifically, that is not every human contributed to or is impacted by extinction equally, then we must have accounts from inside regulatory spaces that show how and why we arrived at this moment of ecological collapse. To put it bluntly, regulatory zones such as ICAT have lured and abetted, conditioned and accelerated the extermination of sea creatures. They have not passively watched the decline of marine life, nor have they overseen the slaughter as distant bystanders. These institutions have in effect provoked the extermination. 
fisheries science, especially ICAT's favorite specialization of population dynamics uh, rooted in statistics, um, was an alibi for extermination. Similarly, rules of procedure became sites where the rich and the rogue could overpower the poor and the peripheral during the actual process of rulemaking in order to achieve a desired outcome. So in closing, before I turn the floor back um, over um, to our moderators, I'd like to add that I think what we write is as important as how we write. So far, um, the response that's trickled in about the book um, has concerned its language and narrative approach. There is a heartfelt quality to the book. A historian expressed to me that it's one of the first academic books he's read that's moved him emotionally. My mom cried in the conclusion, and I don't think it was because the book was written by her daughter. Red Gold offers a different kind of natural history, I think, or at least one appropriate to the Anthropocene, when the division between nature and culture can no longer be sustained empirically, let alone theoretically. The ocean does not exist outside of human history. You may have also noticed throughout the talk that I use the pronoun she and her to describe the book as I do in, uh, to describe the bluefin as I do in a book. Surely an animal is not an it. I thereby contest and destabilize the commodification of fish in my appeal to respect a fellow living being. In the end, I hope this kind of prose allows us to better link the intimacy of our encounters with non-human worlds to concerns about environmental justice. As I mourn the loss of the ocean I knew as a child, I want to nonetheless move through the anxiety wrought by ecological destruction and encourage the reader to reclaim our common home where we work, live, and play with beings from a more than human world. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to just, there. All right, so there, we have questions popping up suddenly. So uh, I'm just going to give it over to Helm first. Uh, you can um, see there. Great. Um, hi, and uh, thank you so much. This is an incredibly exciting book to learn about. So thank you guys at Greenhouse for um, making this happen. Um, I, I want to say a couple of things I really appreciate about your book, if you don't mind um, me doing that, because uh, it's, it's the kind of book I'm really excited to see uh, out. And, and for some of the reasons that you bring out, um, the importance of, as you say, going into the, um, these institutions and these procedures that are um, hard to write about, they're sort of soulless. And, and being able to be patient enough and analytical enough to, to really recognize what's happening. I'm, I'm very grateful for you for doing that. And um, also, I appreciate the, the look at a fish um, where there's been so much attention to, to um, cetaceans. And I understand why there's attention to cetaceans. And the question that I want to ask you is, um, because uh, I would be interested in hearing a little bit about how you would compare, uh, say, your account with Kirk Dorsey's, if you're familiar with that. Um, it seems to me that the IWC was explicitly formed, that's the International Whaling Commission, uh, was explicitly formed to manage fish for economic reasons and, and sort of economic conservation reasons and kind of eventually 
tried to become more of a conservation organization or protection organization. And, and that seems like a different life trajectory than ICAT, although in the end, the management is so much the same. So if you have any comments about that, I would really like to hear them. Sure, um, thank you for that. So um, I think maybe one of the things to also point out about the uh, International Whaling Commission, right, so formed in the dis first discussions about it, um, formed in the 1930s at a time when, you know, if we recall that really the first great um, energy rush was not for petroleum, but was for whale, right? And so absolutely the initial uh, impetus was um, certainly economic in its focus. And I think in some ways what both IWC and ICAT have in common um, is this preoccupation with managing sea creatures of commercial value as stock, right? So, um, but at the same time, uh, just to share with you, and I, I mentioned it in passing in the book, um, which is, and actually might be buried in a footnote somewhere, which is to say, um, one of the people who I interviewed um, from the U.S. delegation was held a very prominent position at the IWC and at ICAT. And um, oftentimes you would hear this comparison between the two. And his comment to me, which I thought was um, super interesting, was that in the trajectory, especially as the moratorium on um, whaling was implemented in, I think it was 86, um, and you started to get that shift um, more explicitly to um, protecting the animal rather than conserving the economy. Um, there was a sense in which the negotiations behind closed doors were a matter of um, if the moratorium was gonna go forward. So if you were going to catch the fish at all or the, the animal at all, whereas at ICAT, the question was never if, but how many, right? And so, um, and, you know, and I think in some ways too, part of, and I, I appreciate, and I, and I oftentimes I think because I'm with the bluefin um, so much that I forget that, um, uh, that the bluefin is not whale, that the bluefin is not dolphin, but yet the um, marine mammals, because in part they are like humans, um, you know, meaning, you know, they, um, have their young, um, you know, uh, you know, in in ways that people can more readily identify with. Um, fish are different, right? There's still, you know, that's still there's this like persistence of like the cold-blooded fish, right? Which a bluefin is not actually, but um, in any case, I think in many ways, um, you know, and even even speaking with, um, uh, I had a conversation with Carl Safina once who shared with me that when he first launched the Bluefin um, campaign in the early 1990s, there's a sentiment that people didn't even realize then in the 1990s that fish are wildlife too, right? And so there's, the, I think there's also just a general um, disposition that's very different um, to a fish than to a dolphin or a whale. And that's reflected in many ways in, um, the regulatory choices that um, uh, decision makers have made, but also ways in which those regulatory choices are reflected in a broader society around us. So I, I hopefully that um, 
Yeah, I saw, I saw the hand up, a thumb up. Thank you. All right, so uh, Monica, you had a question. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I haven't read the book, but um, the talk was fantastic, so I'm going to read it now. Um, my question was about science and scientists, and I was wondering if you can expand on this a little bit more. And I was curious if there were different scientists perhaps advocating for different things and whether, you know, like, were there any behaviorists, for example, that were closer to, I don't know, making people respect the, the tuna or things like that that were kind of contradictory in what, what you found? Um, you call them enablers, enablers of, yeah, of the extermination, basically. And so I was wondering about that. Thank you very much. Yeah, so, um, so in the various scientific meetings that I attended, uh, it's pretty clear that the spectrum of um, scientists is quite wide ranging. So on the one hand, you get the scientists affiliated with environmental groups like the World Wildlife Fund advocating for more robust regulatory measures. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have scientists who are paid by industry to sit in the meetings and quite literally um, write the rules of trade. So um, I think, um, so science itself then, uh, knowing that it's deeply embedded in a political process was never neutral um, at ICAT. And um, uh, so I think, you know, that's really the, the first intervention to make here. And I think the second one, uh, and this is particular, I don't think just to ICAT, but to policymaking more generally, which is to say that when the bureaucrats or the technocrats without uh, scientific training um, see the reports that the scientists put out by committee, these are lengthy, highly technical, I mean, they're, they're, they're impossible really to read unless you have some kind of um, scientific training. And so there was a moment um, during my field work where the technocrats asked the scientists to um, effect effectively develop um, summary reports and graphic depictions where they could see immediately from the get-go what the policy recommendation emerging out of committee would be. And, um, and I think what is important um, is that the, you know, this is ICAT, um, because it's a policymaking wor world um, caught in the seams of conservation and economic growth, that the science that is favored is statistically oriented and, um, and the one that is favored the most is population dynamics. Um, and if you look at the history of the development of population dynamics, um, especially in the 1950s, it's relying on physics and um, uh, where um, it's, it's so relying on physics in the sense that ecosystems are treated as if they're machines with levers Right. And if only you can um, harmonize the machine, then you can get the desired outcome. Right. And the machine then runs well. 
right? So, um, so I think this matters to the extent that other scientists working with bluefin um, outside of the world of population dynamics don't necessarily participate in ICAP because their expertise is not valued there. Right, the policymaker wants to know number um, that uh, they then bring back to their constituents in order to uh, demonstrate um, you know, some kind of balance between, again, conservation and economic growth. Thank you. So I wanted to actually follow up on that question on the, the policy and then in particular the, the international relations bit of it too. I mean, I don't know much about ICAP, but you know, being in Norway, having grown up here, the, the IWC, you know, debates have been quite familiar. I mean, Norway is one of the bad guys, right? We have our ice cream car that comes, I mean, probably once a week now during summer, you can buy whale meat from the ice cream ice car cream directly. Car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, Japan also, you know, takes that role as the bad guy. So, so do you see a similar, like, gallery of protagonists, bad guys, good guys, like countries uh, in, in this debate in ICAT? For sure. Uh, and actually, Norway, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So um, Norway, at least when I was in the field, was actually one of the good guys. And Norway was one of the good guys because Norway's economy is not as um, historically and financially tied to the extraction of bluefin. And so you kind of see the way, um, if you look at the broader field of um, uh, global governance or ocean governance specifically, you can see the way the players act differently depending on the institution, right? So, um, so for example, just you know, to give you two examples um, from what I heard when I was in the field, I remember like the very first experience I had was hearing someone say, um, and this was at the height of the a second uh, campaign to save the bluefin in, in 2010. And someone um, said, what, the, um, uh, what oil is to uh, the, EU, the US fisheries is to the EU, right? So meaning that um, because oil extraction, energy extraction is more uh, tied to the US economy, um, uh, it shapes the kinds of policies that the U.S. adopts. And similarly, uh, you know, especially when you have countries like Spain um, that have some of the largest fishing fleets in the world, um, its economy is very tied, um, not just um, financially at, at the level of GDP, but also this like really interesting way in which you start to see something like the nation play itself out in these regulatory spaces. Right, so you see the sort of, you know, um, throwback uh, and like homage to the Spanish Armada in some ways um, when you see Spain exercise its maritime claims, right? So, um, so without a doubt, um, I think you can see in these spaces that the good guys, bad guys um, vary uh, I think it's probably no surprise that Japan is always the bad guy, um, at least in the world of uh, fisheries. Um, that said, um, you know, I, I do, you know, and it's not to say that Japan isn't worth reforming, but this, it is the sense that um, I, I always am a bit 
um, reluctant to uh, latch on to that critique in the sense that although Japan, in this case, uh, in the case of the bluefin, may import somewhere between 80 to 90% of, um, of all the bluefin, at the same time, Japan is not the one that's necessarily profiting off the supply of the bluefin. And that comes from the European Union, um, the US uh, and Canada um, and other uh, countries that have the infrastructure to deliver um, a fish that spoils very quickly uh, halfway around the globe in a matter of hours. Yeah, I mean, it's true. The, the infrastructures that had developed for this commodity market, they're, they're amazing. Like salmon too, you see it with the fish farming in Norway. Basically, it's sent to China for processing and then back to Norway within a day almost. So um, we have another question from Charlotte. There it is. Yeah. Hi, Jen. Thank you for that talk. It was uh, really, really interesting. Um, and I haven't actually bought your book yet, but that's first on my list for payday, which is <laughs> hopefully coming up soon. Um, yeah, I was really struck by when, when you said um, we have to respect the tuna's wishes um, and the kind of like necessarily follow up from that, which is surely um, what if the tuna wishes to sort of become extinct? Um, and this is kind of, I've been thinking about this with the Scottish wildcat uh, and some work I did a few years ago, um, kind of like, uh, the problem there is that, that the wild cat is hybridizing itself with um, domestic cats and feral cats and sort of becoming its gene diluted. And you have all these kind of questions about purity. Um, but it's this very secretive creature. And then you kind of come to the, the conclusion that to kind of save the wild cat is to sort of let it, let it do what it wants, let it become extinct, let it hybridize. Um, and so I guess my question is, how do we, as people who care about these creatures and about extinction in general, or as scholars kind of come to terms with this, I guess, lack of kinship or loss of relationship? Um, and obviously this is a kind of like quite anthropocentric uh, idea to think that we have the right to have these kinships, but how do we kind of approach this in our, in our work and our writing? Is it a sort of Tom Van Doren morning kind of thing or are there practical things that, that we could be doing? So, yeah, I'd be interested to in your thoughts on that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I can't remember the point at which when I was writing the book that I, you know, I, I, would, I was using um, the language of it, right? And, um, and it's actually really difficult to excise this kind of referent um, from the way we speak and write. And, uh, and so, you know, because in many ways, you know, it shows how hardwired um, in our brains, in many ways, that this relationship um, of commodification has become. And so for me, it's less about wondering what I think the bluefin wants. I, I think it's more about opening myself up to the fact that the bluefin and any creature, right? So it's not just the bluefin, I, you know, it's the fact that, you know, just marveling off the fact that um, a squid says hello by flashing light, right? Or that an octopus can change colors in like seven tenths of a second, 
because um, in, in, in so doing, the octopus is, excuse, is communicating something going on in her inner life, right? So, um, you know, that these are creatures that have social lives. And so I think really the disposition is less about um, what do I think the bluefin wants and more about how can my own life world expand and grow if I take seriously the extraordinary capacities of an animal I do not know anything about. And I, I think in many ways it's about um, then you know, it's, it, I feel it as like a reverence and like a, a respect. Um, uh, and I, and I, I think of it as a, as a disposition so that um, it can reorient, you know, what we, how we teach our students and, and, and the modes of engagement, um, the choices that we make, not just as researchers, but as writers. And I think that really is the first obligation um, of, of writing in, in this moment of, you know, I mean, extraordinary, I mean, it's disturbing. So, you know, when you look in the news, I mean, it's, it's disturbing to see um, how quickly um, the collapse is coming. All right, so Dolly, you had? Yeah, I mean, following up on that, when we think about um, the tuna as agents then um and what that does to icat and these these human actors um you know as a migratory fish um you mentioned that they cross boundaries so you try and draw something in the middle of the ocean um in my own work they do the same thing with domestic animals where it's like they draw a circle on a map and they say oh it belongs here if it goes outside of there we kill it um but it doesn't know that so i was wondering if you could say a little bit more about how the agency of the tuna factors into the way icat has responded to it or regulated it um in these terms so i'll give a broad answer and then maybe a specific one. So the broad one I think would be, um, you know, there was a moment when, um, you know, that the, you know, if we think uh, historically about the emergence of uh, the sushi economy in the early 1970s, which was the very first moment. And really, I mean, this is the founding moment of the global sushi economy, which is, when um, a fish from the Canadian Maritimes was uh, shipped uh, to uh, Tokyo. And for the first time uh, in 1971, uh, the Japanese um, uh, fishmongers tasted for the first time uh, bluefin from Atlantic waters. And, um, and yet this development happened just two years after the formation of the ICAT Treaty. And so um, you can see the way, um, in many ways, the making of the bluefin as red gold is the co-production. Um, it's co-produced both by the fish, the animal, um, and the institution entrusted to regulator. Right, so there's, there is a, a sense in which um, that co-production, I think, uh, 
you know, really matters. But then there's the other sense in which, and I think this is probably the more specific point, um, way to respond to the question, which is that uh, in a scientific management of the bluefin, when that imaginary line was drawn in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean splitting populations, um, so the fishers in the Western Atlantic, meaning from Canada, the US, um, especially because Japan has quotas for actually both the East and the West Atlantic, um, there was considerable, I mean, to the point where you still feel it today, the fishers are still pissed off about that dividing line because they feel like um, effectively ICAT enabled uh, the uh, Europeans to catch um, and or people on the Eastern Atlantic to catch the Western Atlantic fish because the bluefin crosses that border, right? And then returns um, to its, uh, where it spawned in order um, to mate again. And, um, and we know that there's some spawning grounds. Um, we believe in the Mediterranean, in the Gulf of Mexico, and perhaps in the Sargasso Sea in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And so you, you get the sense in which, um, even though today, the vast majority of scientists and people working within ICAT take as true the split between East and West, at the same time, the bluefin knows no boundaries. So it's really not clear um, You know, so it's really not clear then, um, not only, uh, uh, you know, what the regulatory effect of that division was, but also um, where, you know, the, where the, the bluefin lies in all of this. So, um, so, you know, I mean, for me, so that the bluefin certainly is as agent. I think the question too is thinking about, um, uh, again, like how that agency is also in conversation with those who are um, producing regulations about her. Thank you. So uh, if other people have questions, they should uh, let me know now. I just wanted to read um, one of the comments that Helen had had in the chat, just so we have it also for the, the recording here. Because she says, you know, one interesting thing about this discussion of pronouns that we had is the mirror situation has unfolded in maritime history. Only in 2012 did Lloyd's list change from referring to ships as she and instead now refers to them as it. Interesting. But interesting reverse <laughs> there, I think. Really interesting. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it becomes, you know, you mentioned this issue of the subject and the object, right? And that is part of our our change of mentality, are we able to recognize the bluefin tuna as a subject, which in essence makes a she or a he appropriate more so than an object, right? Um, which becomes an it. And so, I, I mean, the other thing I kind of wondered is, you know, how much does this have to do, you mentioned population dynamics and that that becomes the science, um, is about the anonymity of this fish, even though it's huge. I mean, your pictures, it's absolutely gigantic, 
but yet not seen as individuals the way that perhaps uh, the, the transition to you know whales was brought up um, or elephants or tigers or pandas which are somehow seen as individuals and that this the fish is not it's seen as the plural body so yeah no absolutely it's one of the reasons why um i chose not to use they um and in large part because you know and this is also um in contrast to you know the larger um movement in the uh amongst transgendered people to um, refer to themselves as in the plural. And, um, and so for me, um, Dolly, I mean, that's precisely um, why I chose the singular, because there is the tendency to refer to the animal um, as a population and therefore reduce um, every being to its abstract class. Um, and, you know, I, I think also there's a sense you know, my, my current research, um, I've been attending meetings at the UN um, since on hold because of COVID, but nonetheless, um, some of the meetings that I've been attending relate to uh, this new treaty information on marine biodiversity on the high seas in areas beyond national jurisdiction. So BBNJ is the um, acronym. And there, the fish as commodity is so assumed um, but yet the movement is now to treat uh, fish, not just as commodity, but as a marine genetic resource, an MGR. And, um, and so it's also quite interesting. So, so, that, so, so a genetic sequence then, um, you know, is that an it? Um, I think so, right? But, you know, again, so it, it's, it's all, I think points to the larger um, problem, which is one of relationality, right? And the value that we ascribe to those relations. I was wondering about other strategies to, to in a way highlight the individuality uh, of fish like this. So uh, of course you have different kinds of storytelling, like, well, you know, Moby Dick, you know, really launched the whale as individual, even if, you know, you can discuss whether it was the whale's perspective or not, of course. Uh, another one I see people doing now is the uh, animal trackers. So you have quite a few of the, the sharks that are now like they're tracked and they're named as individuals. So you can follow them on the map. So in a way that in that way, their, their lives, their movements become visible. Whereas, I mean, the bluefish tuna, I know very little about it. I mean, I envision, you know, a big fast fish. But it doesn't, in a way, stick with any of these other debates that people have about, uh, I mean, one is ocean plastics that you see. They, it really gets connected to whales because you found uh, several whales that are full of, of plastic bags and so on. Uh, ocean birds also get kind of sucked into this debate, but, but the, the bluefish doesn't seem to like stick to, to that. So do you have any like thoughts on, on those kind of uh, other ways of highlighting individuality? I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think of, you know, absolutely the thinking through these kinds of trackers. And I think of, you know, the, um, in the, in the book, in the 
in the prologue, I reference, you know, the fact that, you know, at a place like SeaWorld, we get um, creatures like Tilikum, right, um, made famous in the film Blackfish. Um, and, you know, there's also the, you know, and so Tilikum is not, you know, T34, you know, so, so there's also, even within the naming, there's other ways to think about it, right? So, um, uh, you know, because some of the names are really just um, like letters and numbers that somehow keep the animal still kind of objectified, right? So you can see, you know, the naming practices matter. And when those names are more intimate, it provides the opportunity to, um, at least at the level of narrative, to uh, also be more intimate with the creature. All right, so it uh, doesn't look like there are any more comments. Do you have anything you want to add? No? Well, then uh, I just have to thank you for coming here to talk about your book. Uh, it was very interesting to, uh, to hear about it. And the book is in the next big pile of books we're ordering for our greenhouse library too. So that's great. Thank you. There. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, everyone for joining. I really appreciate it.